One of the means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption is the reading and the preaching of the word. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Today we are in Genesis chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 5 and we will, we will read through verse probably 9 of chapter 6. We have looked at the creation of the heavens and the earth. We have looked at the creation of humanity and their placement in the garden. We have looked at humanity's fall into sinfulness and the curse that God has placed upon the servant, serpent, upon the woman, upon the man. And we have seen how sin has multiplied and magnified itself in the line of Cain. And today we come back to the line of Adam, which runs through Seth. The line that we will see today is the line from which the seed of the woman will come, that seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And so begin reading with me in Genesis 5, chapter 1, or 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. It's a mouthful, isn't it? When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. 
altogether, Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Let us pray. Our great and holy God, as we look toward your word today, show us what we need to know to glorify you. Show us what we need to know to grow in you and draw us to a saving knowledge of you so that we may be shown what we need to know to worship you in heaven forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we think for any length of time about the state of our world and culture, it can be quite a nerve, a nerve-wracking endeavor. Just this week, the thoughts about our world, the nature around us, have been captivated by storms, by hurricanes and flooding. And we see that nature oftentimes is hostile toward humanity. But when natural disaster doesn't captivate us, our news and our thoughts are oftentimes captivated by the evil that men do. We think of tyrants, we think of abuse, we think of all the different things that happen in our world that shows us that not only is nature oftentimes hostile against humanity, but humanity, unfortunately, is hostile against itself. Today's passage speaks to that, and it speaks to the fact that it seems that no matter where we turn, we are confronted by evil of all kinds. Where do we go when the weight of considering the realities of disaster and wickedness begin to get us down? Where do we find the rest and comfort when the stresses of living in a fallen world begin to take their toll on our hearts and minds? Today we will see in our passage that despite the evil and wickedness of this world, the people of God can find comfort due to God's faithfulness. Before we look at the faithfulness of God and how it manifests itself in God's justice, judgment, and excuse me, God's judgment and God's grace, we need to consider the boring bits. What do I mean by boring bits? Several years ago, I wrote a, read a book written by a friend of mine, and I wrote a small review on it, not because he asked me to, but just because I was arrogant enough to think the world needed to know what I thought about a book. And I love the book. He wrote a wonderful book. It's a children's book called *The Green Amber* by Sam Smith, except for a very short part in the middle where he goes and there's an awful lot of talking and developing a backstory. And so I wrote in my review that it would have been a wonderful book except for the the part in the middle where all that stuff happened. Well, apparently I wasn't the only one that 
gave that particular review, type of review, because in an interview that I listened to with him several months later, he talked about all the people that had criticized him for the boring bits. Chapter 5 of Genesis oftentimes is something that we consider the boring bits. There's a whole lot of he was born, he had children, and he died. He was born, he had children, and he died. He was born, he lived this long, and then he died. But I want us to see today, and I want us to consider and to think about the fact that the genealogies are important. For the original audience of the book of Genesis, the genealogies in Genesis told them five things. First, they display the relationship between ethnicities or people groups by tracing them back to one ancestor. We're going to see after the flood narrative that there is the table of nations. We take Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and all the nations that existed in the time of the Israelites are traced back to those three sons. And then they're traced back to Noah. And then are traced even from there back to Adam. And the Israelites are reminded that even though they are chosen by God, that every single human to have been born to be alive today or to be born in the future is created in the image of God. And to echo what I preached about a couple weeks ago, desperately needs Jesus. So the genealogies remind us that we are all together related to one couple, to Adam and Eve. We all, all our genetic diversity, all our physical diversity, all our language diversity, all our ethnic diversity can be traced back to one single couple. Secondly, genealogies allow the author a, to cover a great period of time without a lot of narrative. Genealogies are kind of the one thing led to another of the ancient Near Eastern world. You know, oftentimes if we're telling a story or recounting a historical event, we say, well, and then one thing led to another and then this happened. That's what genealogies do. They allow the author to move several thousand years of history forward without covering a whole lot of narrative, without writing a whole lot of words, because the important thing, which we'll cover later, is the preservation of the seed of the woman through the line of Seth. Thirdly, genealogies provide what is called legitimacy of descent. Who are you related to? Who is your ancestor? For Noah, it's important for us to know that he's the ancestor of Adam as the image of God and the ancestor of Seth as the potential seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. We see this in the genealogies of Jesus as well, as he is connected to David as the king in the book of Matthew, and he's connected to Adam as the perfect of image of God in the book of Luke. Fourthly, genealogies show God's selecting activity. If we look at the last verse of Genesis chapter 5, we see a shift from kind of a linear genealogy to what authors call a segmented genealogy, where we don't just have this father, this father, this father begat this son. We have this father begat three sons. And so in that, we will see God's choosing, his selecting activity, because only one of those sons, one of those three sons, Shem, will preserve the line of Seth into the future. And fifthly, from the book of Genesis, we see that gene the genealogies show us that history is not a collection of random acts. History is controlled by God to bring about redemption. Why is it important for us to see the preservation of the line of Seth? Because we're told in Genesis chapter 4 that Seth 
is basically the, the seed of the woman, the line from which redemption will come, which is promised in Genesis 3.15. And God is ordering all of history, but specifically the line of Seth, to bring about his redemption. And so when you read genealogies, whether they be in Genesis, whether they be in Chronicles, whether they be in Matthew or Luke, wherever you find genealogies in the scripture, remember that God is controlling history to bring about redemption. And if that's the only one of the five things that you remember that I talk about here, the important things, that's the most important thing to remember about the genealogies. Now, there are two questions that we need to ask regarding these genealogies, and I'm just going to briefly touch on these. I'm not going to give you every reason for the answer that I give. You can ask me later, and I'll tell you, you know, ask me even later than that. But I'm going to touch on these two questions briefly. First, are the ages legit? In other words, did Methuselah really live to be 969 years old? And probably so. More than likely, Methuselah did live to be 969 years old. Lamech, Noah's father, did live to be 777 years old. There is evidence here and in, in, in the scripture following the flood where lifespans progressively get shorter. There's evidence that the world was far less hostile to humanity prior to the flood than it is now. And more than likely, these men and women did live that long. Secondly, the question is, is the genealogy complete? In other words, are there really only 10 generations between Adam and Noah? And the answer to this is probably not. And we can see this in some external evidences and some internal evidences. External evidence, archaeological evidence, shows that Jericho in Jerusalem was established somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000 B.C. If you add these genealogies up, according to the time we have today, we only get to about 4,004 B.C., according to Usher's establishment of the date of the birth of Adam. And also, other ancient Near Eastern genealogies leave gaps in them in order to make a point. Now, external evidence is not as important as internal evidence, so what internal evidence do we have that these genealogies, the generations, may be gapped? The first is a language. Became the father of, or if you have the, uh, the, New King, or the King James Version, that word begat can, also be, begat can be used for an ancestor as well. So in biblical language, you could say that John Richard Hughes fathered my children. Even though he didn't directly father my children, he could be considered the father of my children because he's one of their ancestors. That's my dad, by the way. Um, so that's the thing. The language could mean an ancestor, not just a direct line. The other thing is parallelism. There are exactly 10 generations in the genealogy following the flood. There are exactly 10 generations in the genealogy before the flood pointing to the importance of the flood narrative. We see the importance in the slowing down of the language. We see the importance in the structure of the genealogies before and after. And thirdly, other genealogies in Scripture do the same thing. The point of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is to show that Jesus is the Davidic king, the descendant of Abraham and the perfect eternal Davidic king. There are at least three kings in a row that Matthew gaps from his genealogy. And so we see that these genealogies are given to us oftentimes gapped just to make a point. 
Now that's all technical, I understand that. It's also important sometimes to look at technical information. It's important sometimes it helps us to grasp the meaning of scripture when we look at technical information, when we consider the boring bits, if you will. But the important thing to remember, and hopefully you guys have heard me say this before, I know my Sunday school class has heard me, I know my Sunday night Bible study class has heard me, whether it's gapped or not, whether the years are correct or not, the important thing is, is that this is the inspired word of God. And those things are there for a reason. Even the boring bits are there for a reason. And the reason is, is that they are going to point out two things for us that we see in this story. The first is the wickedness of humanity, and the second is the faithfulness of God. So let us consider the wickedness of humanity. If we jump to chapter 6, we've already had a taste of the wickedness of humanity in the line of Cain. But as we look at the line of Seth, we begin to see that even the seed of the woman, even the line from which the seed of the woman will come, begins to descend into some of the same wickedness that the seed, the line of Cain struggled with. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says, When the men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. It's confusing, isn't it? Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? There's been three different, uh, three basic interpretations to that, that the sons of God are the, the sons in the line of Cain, the daughters of men are the sons, in, excuse me, it's the opposite. The sons of God are the sons in the line of Seth. The daughters of men are the daughters in the line of Cain. And you have intermarrying between these two lines. Now, the problem with that is, is no daughters are mentioned of Cain in the genealogy of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Um, the other problem is, is typically that's not how this word, these words are used. It does fit the context very well as we're kind of comparing and contrasting the line of Cain and the line of Seth, but it doesn't fit perfectly. The second one is that the sons of God are angels or fallen angels. Throughout the rest of the scriptures, oftentimes sons of God is used to picture an angel. The problem with that is that angels are not judged in the flood. The judgment is limited to earthly life and to humanity. And finally, the third option is to take sons of God and that word heroes and, and, use, and translate heroes warriors instead of heroes, which is a legitimate translation, to take the word Nephilim, which means to fall, and to say that these are sinful, horrible, tyrannical rulers, kind of the Hitlers, if you will, of the ancient Near East. And they are grasping at the women of, uh, that do not belong to them. Now, scholars have picked one of those as an interpretation. Scholars have picked combinations of one and two, one and three, two and three. Um, I would lean more toward a combination of two and three, of kind of a demon-possessed, demonically-driven, tyrannical, Hitler-type ruler. But Derek Kidner says this, he says, more important than the detail of this episode is its indication that man is beyond self-help, whether the Sethites have betrayed their calling or demonic powers have gained a stranglehold. And we see in two ways that man is sinful beyond self-help. The first way is in their action. Language is here is very important. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. 
literally translated, that is, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were good, and they married, or they took any of them they chose. Listen to Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, and she took some and ate it. Just as Adam and Eve violated God's boundaries for ethical knowledge, we see a picture of humanity here beginning to violate the boundaries of marriage that God has set forth. They took whatever woman they thought was good for themselves. It's a, it's a bit of a violent word, even though we translate it married oftentimes. It's used in a context here where this ruler, this strong person, this one whose name is to fall, grabs whatever woman he wants and builds a harem. That's the picture we have here. And so we begin to see humanity, even the line that's going to bring us the righteous seed of the woman, descends into evil, descends into sin, and grasps at stuff that are not, is not theirs. And we see this grasping even further in the next commentary that the author gives us in verses 5 through 8. What does he say about humanity there? He says that God looks, God takes stock of everything to do with humanity, and he sees that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all the time. So not, our, not only are our actions steeped in sin, every inclination, which means every desire, every want, every thought, every idea, everything that we propose to do in our mind is only evil all the time. It's a pretty dire declaration about the state of humanity. In other words, nothing we think, nothing we do can please and honor God. And how do we know that? Because as humanity, just like Adam and Eve, in every area of our life, we grasp at God. We grab at the authority that he has in every era, area of our life and we take it for ourselves. So, can humanity do good things? Yes, we saw, it, we saw it writ large last year during the flood, during the summer, where people just descended upon Greenbrier County to help us put our lives back together. We're going to see it in Houston and Louisiana and wherever Irma lands, we're going to see that as well. But it's not just the actions that we do. God says here he judges our thoughts as well. Why do we do those things? Ultimately, we do those things because we're grasping at glory for ourselves. I very proudly put on my Samaritan's Purse t-shirt yesterday and went running on the trail. I had every option to take my Samaritan's Purse t-shirt off when I went running on the trail and put something else on. But somewhere deep down inside of me, I wanted people that I saw on the trail know that I had helped. Because I wanted Samaritan Purse to get the glory? Because I wanted God to get the glory? No. Because I wanted them to say, hey, look, that stranger's pretty cool. He helped out in Greenbrier County. That's what we do. That's why we... By the way, I've avoided wearing that t-shirt for close to a year for that very same reason. But when faced with the temptation, I went ahead and did it. That's what it means when it says every thought, every inclination is only evil all the time. And God says, because of this, I'm pained and I'm going to take judgment upon the earth. 
Our ultimate problem is human beings is that we grasp at God's place and grasping at God's place and authority makes every inclination of our heart only evil all the time. So how does God respond to this issue? I want to say that he responds with faithfulness. God responds to humanity in faithfulness. First, we see God's faithfulness in judgment. How is it faithful for God to judge? It's exactly what God's promised to do, is to judge. And so for him to be faithful, he has to do that. What did he tell Adam and Eve would happen if they took of the fruit of the tree? You would surely die. Now that death was postponed. We talked in Sunday school today that that postponement is both a grace and a judgment. It's a grace because it gives us time. It gives us opportunity to repent It's a judgment because as long as we don't repent, it builds up judgment against us. And so, but death comes to every man. In the boring bits of chapter 5, for every generation except for one, how does it end? And then he died. But we we don't only see judgment in the kind of boring cycles of life. We see judgment in God's pursuit of humanity. God says, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air, for I am grieved that I made them. The flood was a judgment upon humanity for their sin, and unfortunately the animal kingdom suffered as well. Paul says all of creation groans in anxious anticipation of the redemption to come when Christ returns. When humanity sinned, we broke the world too. The world is hostile toward humanity because we're hostile towards its creator in many ways, in every way. And so the world suffers as well. The world was cursed by God because of our sin. But we not only see God's faithfulness in judgment, we see his faithfulness in grace. We see this in three ways. We do see God's grace in chapter 5. God promised that a redeemer would come from the seed of the woman, and if God had executed final judgment right there with Adam and Eve, there would be no hope for redemption. But the fact that each of those generations begins with, and -and so-and-so lived so many years and begat so-and-so, remind us that God is gracious in long lives. God is gracious in keeping the image of God alive in humanity. Now, the image of God is broken, it is scarred, it is wounded, but the image of God is still there. And so we see God's grace in sustaining humanity, in sustaining the world. We also see God's grace in the provision of comfort. Who does he give to us? Who does he give to humanity? The end of chapter 5, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. A righteous man, which we're told in 6-9, brings comfort to humanity. Sin causes pain. For us, it causes the pain of toil and death. For God, in some sense, it causes the pain of his creation rebelling against him. And that pain needs to be comforted, especially our pain. 
Our pain oftentimes is our own fault. It's the fault of sin in the world, but sometimes we bring pain in our own lives. When we sin against the world, we bring pain to the world. When we sin against humanity through abuse, through verbal attacks, through physical attacks, whatever it may be, when we sin against other humans, we bring pain to them, but we also bring pain back upon ourselves as we deal with the depth of our brokenness. And just as God sent a comforter to the world at the time of Noah, he sends a comforter to us as well. How was Noah able to bring comfort to the people at his time? It's because he was righteous. It's because God had gifted him with righteousness as we see in Hebrews 11. But what's the problem? Even though he doesn't die in today's passage, we'll see at the end of the flood account that Noah dies as well. He doesn't escape death fully. And we'll also see that the reason for that is that he sins. He is not completely righteous. And so the question is asked at the beginning of the flood account, is Noah the seed of the woman? And at the end, the answer is a resounding no. We still need hope. And so we have Matthew chapter 1, where we're given the genealogy of the perfect king, the eternal king, who is righteous, who is the perfectly sanctified, holy, righteous image of God from Luke chapter 3, 2, excuse me. Who is the rest that we need from the ultimate pain of sin? Not just temporal pain, not just pain that we feel right now as we live, but rest and comfort from the eternal pain of judgment upon sin. He took that pain upon himself, the pain of eternal judgment upon himself, so that we might have comfort and rest for those who believe, for those who call upon him. We see God's faithfulness and grace in his defeat of death. Enoch's story should jump out at you. Every person before Enoch had children, had sons and daughters, then he died. Had children, had sons and daughters, then he died. Had children, had sons and daughters. You hear that six times, then he died. And then you get to Enoch. And he had children and he had sons and daughters. And what are you expecting? Then he died. But what do you get? But he walked with God. And God, he was no more because God took him. We talk about death being defeated. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see a very powerful representation of it right here with the life of Enoch. Walks with God is not just some piety, not just some following the rules. This is that intimate relationship. It's language that's borrowed from Genesis 3 to describe God's relationship with Adam and Eve. Was Enoch perfect? No. But God in his grace, God in his gift gave him righteousness and gave him the strength to be sanctified to a point where they could walk together. And he took them from this earth. In other words, the cycle can be broken. Death is not the end. God has defeated death through Jesus. So we see the wickedness of man and we see God's response to the wickedness of man in the boring bits through faithfulness and judgment and faithfulness and grace. Despite all the evil and wickedness of the world, the people of God can kind of find comfort because of God's faithfulness. God tells us at the end of the flood narrative that his judgment in the flood was not complete. 
and that he would not judge the earth in that way again. But we do know that ultimately God is still faithful in final judgment. We can take comfort as we view and as sometimes we are victims and as sometimes we are perpetrators of the evilness and wickedness of this world. We can take comfort that God will ultimately and finally judge evil once and for all when his son returns. Asaph in Psalm 73 said, I look upon the world, I see the wicked prosper and the righteous fail, and I wonder what's going on until I entered the sanctuary of God and I saw God's plan for humanity. Revelation is both a comfort and a warning. It gives us guidelines in the, in the letters to the seven churches that we are to become conquerors. And the comfort is if you become conquerors, you will miss everything else that happens judgmentally in the book of Revelation. The warning is if you don't become conquerors, you will be subject to all the judgment that happens in the book of Revelation. And when the, the city whose foundations are in God descends upon the earth, you will not be a member. You will not be a citizen of that city if you do not conquer. And how do we conquer? God has provided for us a righteous man who found favor and brings us comfort. And John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God is faithful in the grace of his son, the grace of salvation. And if you have embraced that, the descriptor for Noah who found favor is true of you. And if you have believed in the only begotten son of God as your savior, the descriptor walked with God of Enoch is true of you as well. We have responsibility in that. Yes, we are able to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, but we have responsibility to pursue a walk with God. It's, just, it's not just piety. It's not just obeying the law. It's, it's seeking to have an intimate relationship with Him, to share with Him all of your fears, to share with Him all of your sins, to share with Him all of your joys, and to know that He speaks grace into your life. And if you do those things, if you believe, if you walk, if you pursue God, it will be true of you that when he returns, you will be no more because God has taken you away. Let's pray. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you for the reminder in these genealogies that you are faithful to judge and that you are also faithful to save. Burn inside of our hearts the knowledge, the reality of your grace. Drive it deep into us so that we might pursue walking with you. So that we might love you above all things. And so that we might find rest and comfort in an evil and wicked world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.